Hey there, real quick before we start the show. If you've listened to this podcast before, you've heard me tell you what an absolute honor of a lifetime it is. I get to create safe spaces for my guests to share their stories. I'm so moved every time they tell me how meaningful and sometimes even healing it was for them to feel held in our conversation. Based on the number of downloads and notes I receive from listeners around the world, I'm guessing this show is making an impact in some of your lives too. Yet I know for a fact there are more grievers out there who are feeling isolated and alone in their grief, whose grief journey might be made, well, just a little bit easier by listening to this show. If you want to help them find the show, here's what I'm asking. After today's episode with my guests, Michelle and Rochelle, head to Apple Podcasts, find the show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, leave a rating, and write a review. The world of algorithms counts on that to get this show out to the people who might just need it most. And the second is really, truly um, a non-pathology-based orientation. So really, and not just for lip service, and as you heard in our training, a deep, deep orientation as grief, as an experience that we as humans are capable of experiencing, similar to pregnancy, childbirth, digestion, pooping, all of these things that we do that we don't participate in, that don't require our consent, that are involuntary, um, and that aren't particularly pleasant and perhaps even painful and perhaps difficult. Um, but that it just is a very, very, very human experience and one that we can perhaps start to leave all of the narrative <laughs> that we've attached onto it at the door or at least bring them into the space and start really, really unpacking them and questioning them and saying, who said this? Yeah. Where did this come from? <laughs> Might it not be true? Might it not be in our best interest? You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer, and through the show and my work at Reimagining Grief, I'm on a mission to change the narratives of grief one conversation at a time. In today's episode, I'm bringing you a conversation I had earlier this fall with not just one, but two incredible humans, Michelle Williams and Rochelle Bensousson. These two are bringing their unique lived experiences, both personally and professionally, to honor the humanity in death, dying, and grief. Both have faced personal loss, including the death of Michelle's mother and the death of Rochelle's partner, Diane, nearly 15 years ago. They also both recognize and are making visible the trauma and grief passed down through generations, helping us to understand the intergenerational impact of grief. As practitioners in the palliative care field, both of my guests have witnessed and experienced racism, classism, and homophobia in the current model of care. These shared experiences led them to co-found Being Here Human, an organization that centers anti-racism, anti-oppression, and inclusiveness in their work. Like me, they're also taking a stance to denounce the pathology-focused language and systems that currently exist within standard grief delivery models. We explore some of the unexplored terrain of grief, including the consequences of unacknowledged grief and trauma across generations. We uncover some of the biases in the systems of care and together invite you to honor what it means to be grieving and to being here human. My name is Michelle Williams, and I am one of the co-founders of Being Here Human. Um, I got into this work a little over six years ago, um, and it was subsequent to my mother dying a little over 10 years ago that I developed sort of a keener interest in end of life and bereavement and grief. My name is Rachel Bensusson. And uh, I've been in the field of hospice palliative care, 
grief and loss, bereavement um, for about 12, 13 years now. Um, most of that time was spent uh, in a variety of community and residential hospices across Southern Ontario, uh, building community-based and volunteer-based uh, bereavement programs. Um, since that time, I now am a professor at both with Master University and Western University, uh, where I teach medical students. I also teach in the Department of Thanatology. Uh, my graduate work is in Thanatology, which is the study, the scientific study of death, dying, grief and loss, and the losses that are brought about as a result. Um, and then two years ago, became Michelle's other half, uh, and now operate as the co-founder and managing director of Being Here Human. Welcome to the show, Michelle and Rochelle. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so glad to have you here on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks. So um, I was so thrilled to discover Being Here Human, the organization that you all run um, a couple months ago, I guess, as I'm always looking to expand my own learning in the field of grief and loss, death and dying. So I'm always kind of reading, researching, exploring other people's work. And I was really thrilled to discover the work that you are doing. And I'm going to give you both a chance to sort of explain sort of the scope and depth and breadth of, of what you're doing. But I'd love to start a conversation today the way I start every single one of my episodes. And that is inviting each of you to explore for just a few minutes what your earliest memories of grief were in your growing up life. Thinking back to how the adults in your life were modeling grief, sort of implicitly, explicitly, through behaviors, through messages. Thinking back now, what you know about grief as both a professional and through your personal life, what do you think that early experience taught you, sort of positively or negatively or both, about grief and what it should or shouldn't look like? Rochelle, maybe we'll start with you for that question. So... It's a hard question for me to answer because the truth is, is all of my earliest experiences of loss, I wasn't able to identify as loss mm -hmm. until I had the most significant loss of my life in some ways, which was the death of my beloved Diane when I was 25. Um, I think like many people, I was socialized to believe that grief only occurred when there was a physical death and therefore there hadn't been a physical death. And so I couldn't identify it as loss. Um, so that being said, I come from four generations of motherless daughters. So my great grandmother died in childbirth of her youngest sibling, leaving my grandmother a motherless daughter when she was three years old. Then my mother lost her mother to a very sudden cardiac event when she was quite young. And my mother became a motherless daughter at 17. And then due to a combination of intergenerational trauma and mental illness, I lost my parents, not due to death, um, but lost them and was not parented by them um, from as early as I can remember. Yeah. So uh, my grandfather was also one of the very, very few people at 24 who was liberated um, from Auschwitz. Um, and so just loss and grief is just like, in my bones. It's just inherited. Um, but not having parents because of that intergenerational trauma, mental illness who were able to parent me, um, but still alive, I didn't start being able to kind of name for myself the experience of orphanhood until I was much, much, much older, uh, probably to my late 20s, when I was able to finally kind of claim that for myself and say, this was my experience. Um, and so I think my earliest, if I had to like look back, I don't think I knew this as a young person, but I remember my grandfather having the tattoo from the concentration camp on his arm and we never talked about it ever. Um, I was aware of it, that that had happened and that's why that was there, but we didn't talk about it. And we all kind of quietly just allowed for a lot of really terrible behavior that we would never, I think, have allowed from another human being had he not come from that experience. So now, of course, as an almost 40-year-old clinician, I can see that he had rampant PTSD. <laughs> but, you know, nobody says that. It was in the 80s, and he had married my grandmother, who was from Morocco. So we have this 
Moroccan-Israeli combination, <laughs> lots of tempers. And so it was just kind of like, well, he's short-tempered or he's particular. That's how he is. And we just understandably accommodated for it. Um, but if I could look back on it now, I can realize that the messaging was just leave it. We don't yeah. pick at those things. We certainly don't discuss them. We don't in any way seek outside assistance. <laughs> um, you know, that you just kind of survive. And I can't say that because of the rest of my life, I grew up in a lot of, you know, financial chaos and uncertainty, um, really impoverished and deprived in many ways. And although I can look back and be like, maybe that wasn't the greatest situation, there was something in my family about you just survive. You know, my grandmother lost her mother at three years of age, essentially raised herself at 16, broke off two prearranged engagements in the middle of the night, got on a boat without telling a soul and immigrated to Israel where she didn't know the language. From the moment she landed, she went and enlisted in the army just so she could have a place to sleep and food to eat. So there was something in it about this story of people who just got about the business of living and just, just survived. Um, and so I can't, as in some ways I can critique that. And then in other ways, I think it served me really, really well in my life. Um, and certainly served me well um, for what I still think was just the most devastating thing of my life, which is when Diane died. And so I would say that experience of her death allowed me to do it differently and was the foundation for the work that Michelle and I do now. So I'm grateful to have learned differently. Um, but I also don't know how I not had I not come from a lineage of people who just survived against literally all odds if I would have made it through um, in some ways I want to say as broken and as intact as I did. Both and I think, you know, that you're both and resiliency. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. And when I ask that question positively or negatively, it isn't a judgment or an opportunity to sort of lay at the feet of our parents, you know, you did me wrong. All of us are going to do better, hopefully, in some ways than our parents did. And our kids are going to do better and so on and so forth. And better isn't necessarily because they... Everybody does the best they can with the information they have at the time. So I appreciate the way that you sort of both ended that, which was like maybe that wasn't ideal and there were a lot of qualities that your family passed that allowed you to be the person that you are today, for sure. Yeah, I had a student this week, you know, ask me, she was a psychology student, so she comes from a very kind of Western pathology-based orientation, and she was like, do you think there aren't adaptive and maladaptive ways of grieving. And I said to her, I don't believe there are for the reason kind of pre of the question preemptive to that, which is like, who gets to decide? Yeah. Like I surely am not the one who gets to decide what would be adaptive or maladaptive. And since I've yet to meet someone who has the authority to decide, I'm going to say those qualities are constructs I don't want to participate in. Um, and, you know, I can do better than my grandparents maybe, but I'm not in a concentration camp with my entire family death at 24. Exactly. So I don't actually know that I would have even lived, let alone done better. Michelle, I'd love to hear a little bit about you, that sort of same question. What were you seeing grief look like in your growing up life? And, and what do you think you learned from that experience? So I think um, similarly to Rochelle in that when I was younger, for me, loss was death. Um, there was no other sort of definition of it. Um, of course, now in retrospect, I look back and I realize that I was growing up within a family unit that was in massive amounts of grief response constantly. Um, my, my father lost his mother when he was three years old and was neglected and abused by his stepmother. And then, you know, subsequently left home at 16, um, to be out on his own in the world after not having been really properly parented without ever having really, um, confronted the fact that he'd lost his mother at such a young age. 
and that he did not have a maternal figure. And then, you know, for so, in so many ways, that sort of like translated into the person he ultimately became and the father that I know now, who I have a very difficult and estranged relationship with that I understand um, so much has to do with the amount of grief and trauma that he experienced as a young person, um, as a young child. And so when I think about that experience and how did that play out among the adults in my life, we didn't talk about it. Yeah. It was not discussed. Um, my father certainly never talked about it. And, you know, as an adult, when I've tried to talk to him about it in more recent years, um, he absolutely denies that it has any impact on his life today, which, which I can certainly, as a sort of stepping outside of, of him, I can say for sure it had an impact. And has had an impact not only on his life, but on his relationships with his partner, with his children. It sort of permeated every aspect of his life. Um, but without him having that awareness um, or even that inclination or socialization, I would say, even as a man of that generation, um, not socialized to actually confront those events and the emotions that are that are sort of outshoots of those traumatic events. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I certainly had an experience that we don't confront it. We don't talk about it. Um, when we did have death loss in our family, uh, again, it was something that was, um, something to be moved on from very quickly. Don't dwell on it. Um, you know, we don't want to talk about death. Uh, certainly we don't want to talk about death loss. Um, and above and beyond that, when I think about myself today and who I am as a woman of color in this world, so much of my psychology uh, stems from generations and generations of loss. I come from a history of slavery and indentured servitude. Um, my, my furthest back ancestors, you know, in Guyana, which is where my family are from, came there, either they were colonizers, Scottish and British um, ancestry, or they were from uh, West Africa and South Asia. And if they were from West Africa and South Asia, they were brought over as either indentured servants, if they were South Asian, and slaves, if they were West African. Um, and so there's so much loss wrapped up in that, and there's so much grief embedded in that history um, that even today, when our family discusses our, our heritage and, and our ancestry, there is so much debate about, you know, how our particular family lineage started. And so, for example, on my father's side, there's a discussion as to whether or not the slave that was brought over from West Africa was raped or whether she was complicit and con consenting to um, being with her slave owner. Because we, part of that, my family lineage comes from that. Yeah. Like so many, like so many, I would say, um, African-Americans, um, and even here in Canada as well, uh, can sort of draw back their lineage somewhere. There was like a slave owner. Yeah. <laughs> and there's so much of that sort of grief and loss that's um, embedded in my family history and in my psychology and in the psychology that I inherited from my, my parents and from my grandparents of colonization and um, and something that I I have to be aware of constantly, and that I actively um, am working to sort of dismantle yeah. myself. Yeah, and so it's it's a very complicated um, type of grief that I I've come to learn about and become more um, um, educated for myself over the last decade or so. Yeah. Thank you both for sharing and expanding, particularly I appreciate expanding the ways in which we think about grief and loss and, and um, the kind of categories we think about that, whether it's non-death loss, whether it's estranged relationships, whether it's intergenerational trauma and grief and loss loss of homeland, loss of safety, if we're talking about being violent and, and traumatized. That's part of the work I try to do all the time at Reimagining Grief and on this show. And I know that's part of the work that you all are doing at Being Here Human. So I appreciate you bringing that up. 
When we come back, Michelle and Rochelle share how their personal grief and the inequities in care they witnessed led them to create with very deep intention the approach they are taking to their work at Being Here Human. Speaking of approaches, I wonder if you've heard me share this metaphor I developed long ago to explain how I see grief. Here's the way I see it. Our lives are built by the stories we tell of our experiences. A death, a devastating loss of relationship, ability, homeland, or even dream, or a traumatic event is akin to the manuscript of our lives being torn to shreds and handed back to us with no instructions on how to rewrite or live our lives. Grief is the journey we're on as we rewrite and live into the story of our lives. So given that you guys just shared the sort of expansive um, definition or sort of way of thinking about grief and loss, I'd love to explore with you a little bit more how that shaped both of your careers. I know you both have professional careers prior to coming this and this sort of helping profession in different um, settings. What were you seeing prior to creating Being Here Human around the topics of grief and death and loss that made you want to sort of switch gears, as I understand it, and create something very unique in this practice? Sort of what were you learning and seeing in your professional roles previously? And then what 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 does the shift look like in terms of um, how you think about grief, how you help people through grief that looks very different than your previous work? Yeah. Michelle, do you want to share? Yeah, sure. So um for me, I came from a very different background from the one that I'm in today. Um, I had a more corporate sort of marketing entrepreneurial uh, background. And so I later in life decided, and after my mother had died, I decided to go back to school to uh, pursue social work and um, to get a master's degree in social work. And with a very knowing going into it that I, I had a strong interest in um anything around end of life palliative and bereavement and discovered very quickly, as I know many other social work, um, especially masters of social work students realize is that there actually isn't any training formal or otherwise in the area of grief, loss, end of life palliative. If you want to do that work um, as a social worker, and quite frankly, most jobs that are in end of life palliative care our social work positions, um, you actually have to pursue that on your own. You have to do your own research and writing around it. You have to do your own, really your own education. You have to go and find your own experiences for your placements and or internships. You really have to go and do that all on your own. So um, very, very quickly, I realized I wasn't going to get what I was specifically interested in um, unless I had pursued it on my own. So I did. Um, it is actually the way that I met Rochelle. Uh, it was while I was doing my master's degree, and um, I went to the hospice where Rochelle was the director of psychosocial services, and um, I asked her to supervise my master's. Um, prior to that, my own kind of experience of end of life when my mother was dying um, was that I, I found that there were, I was noticing that there were some differences in the way that I was seeing uh, our family being interacted with, with palliative care doctors, nurses, PSWs, and um, the local LINs who provided those home care services. Um, you know, oftentimes we very much felt as though uh, the decisions that we were making around our, my mother and, her, and where she died and where she got her care um, were being sort of undermined, um, and, or not respected by the care teams that were surrounding us at the time. Um, and then when I spoke to other folks who were having, you know, a similar experience where a loved one was at end of life, the stories that I was hearing from them sounded totally different. The amount of support they received, the kind of interactions they were having just sounded so profoundly different. Um, when I went into hospice and started working with Rochelle, 
um, I started to see the same things repeated again. So I was seeing my experience once again repeated in these hospice settings where um, that were situated in diverse, culturally diverse communities, but were occupied by predominantly white um, residents. And then on occasion, when we had someone come into the hospice who was of a different, different sort of ethnic background or a different orientation, um, gender or sexual orientation, the types of experiences that those folks were having looked very similar to the experiences that me and my family had had. Um, and so I was realizing that this was not a microcosm that I had experienced, that this was a larger systemic um, structural issue uh, that was based in and around discrimination, racism, et cetera. And I was frustrated. I think rightly so. Um, and when I, as I was getting to know Rochelle and, and she and I were becoming really good friends, we were having a lot of conversations around this. Um, she was noticing a lot of the same things that I was, and she had been noticing it for many, many years because she'd been in the space longer than me. Um, and it was out of those conversations and those experiences that we realized like there is a way that we could do this differently, that we have a perspective and an orientation that, that is different and not in line with the status quo systems that we're seeing right now and the way things are, are conducted and executed for folks who are at the end of life. Um, and so we just decided that we, we wanted to do this differently, that we could do this differently. And with my entrepreneurial background, um, I recommended and suggested that we try launching a social enterprise around this. Um, and we did it. Yeah. And Rochelle brought her decade long experience in end of life and hospice, all of her experience around grief and loss and knowledge um, and we combined these two skills and uh, created what you see now as being your human. Yeah, that's so powerful. With a very strong sort of, uh, with a premise of anti-racism, anti-oppression, inclusiveness, diversity, et cetera. Because that was a very specific aspect of the system that you are trying, that you are trying to call into question and to make real really? significant changes. I really appreciate that. Um, I know, uh, Rochelle, that you were sort of, not entrepreneurial. So when she first approached you, you were like, I don't know about this. But before, and I'd love to hear sort of what got you over that because of the spark maybe and the passion about doing the work. But you guys are both located in Canada and you were talking about this systemic racism, the systemic oppression that was happening in the sort of palliative um, hospice care space. Uh, I have listeners listening to the show from all over the world. I know from the friends that I have here in the States, they've described that. Have you worked with colleagues um, in the U.S. or in other countries who are reporting um, this same kind of systemic sort of discrimination in, the, in that space? Yeah, I think there's, if you look at the historical roots of hospice palliative care, which originated with Cicely Saunders in the U.K., Nobody, it doesn't matter where you practice hospice care, you're not escaping that history. And yeah. so, um, and it's not just racism. We absolutely saw racism. We also saw anti-Indigenous racism. It's homophobia, transphobia, classism. Um, one of the stories, so I wasn't hesitant when Michelle brought it to me. When she brought it to me, I, was, I had a hell yes from the beginning. And so here comes this absolute gift of a human being in Michelle who basically walked in and said, I believe in this and I believe in your orientation. I believe in your work. And I actually have all the skills and resources and time that you don't have. I can build the website. I can do it. So I can do all the things. Um, and oh, I just get like emotional talking about it. Cause had I not met her, like she's the great privilege of my life. I don't, I won't ever have class privilege. There's not a lot that I have. I live with a disability, but she is the privilege of my life and nothing, uh, my life wouldn't look the way it looks right now. Um, oh, it's so weird about it. Um, if it wasn't me cry too. <laughs> that, you guys will not be the first or the last people that cry on this show. So that's um, okay. If it wasn't for her, like she just did actually radically change my life and what was possible. Um, and she gave me an out 
of working within a system that was so incredibly violent and harmful, not just to others, but to me as well. Um, I had been in it for about 10 years when we met and it was really taking something from me at this point. It wasn't working with the dying or the bereaved that was actually the most difficult at all, which is what everyone's assumption was. They were like, oh, did you burn out? I'm like, no, I was tired of being the only marginalized person on staff, the only marginalized voice in the room. Um, I was tired of being scapegoated um, as the angry lesbian, as, you know, being too sensitive, as not being a team player, all the ways that women of color forever know how that goes down and how you then exit an organization. Um, and the story that I, to I tell often is I was working at a hospice and uh, there was a family there. And this was a white family. And it was a white family there. Uh, one of their family members was dying. And my executive director pulled me aside one day um, and she said, hey, you know the donation box that we keep at reception? And I said, yes. And she's like, can you uh, remove it and just lock it up in our file cabinet? And I was like, oh, why? And she was like, well, we have a really difficult family in room four and I'm worried that it will go missing. And the family in room four was poor. <laughs> They weren't difficult at all. Yeah. They were incredibly lovely human beings. They were poor. And so she wanted us to hide the donation box. So A, the criminalizing of some of poverty is disgusting to me. But then on top of that, it was like, how do you stand here and say that you do good work? When, if, when you see a family in need, your first response isn't to say, that's exactly who these donations are for. Right. And to offer it to them let alone to lock it up. And so that for me was really the breaking point. It started to take something from me. Um, and so when Michelle did approach, I had a massive yes, because not only was I sick of seeing all white staff with all white boards, you know, doing the kind of token gesture you know, putting up a rainbow flag in the month of June or saying, well, everyone's welcome, but not being willing to actually do any of the work to prepare for their arrival. And then in fact, letting all of these unconscious biases play out um, by staff and just microaggression after microaggression to these families who are already in the worst moment of their lives. And so aside from all of the systemic harm and that Michelle and I, said when we go out on our own, anti-racism will be at the foundation of how we attend to grief and bereavement work. Aside from this was also this idea that over and over and over, I mean, 10 years of the conference circuits that I did and the speaking engagements, and it was always grief is normal, grief is normal, grief is normal. Grief is not a time-limited event. It's not a time-limited event. Like collectively, there would be these professional norms we would agree upon. And then what I would see is, well, you can't have a bereavement program without a licensed therapist or social worker. Well, we can't let volunteers or community members do this kind of support without clinical supervision. Well, you know, they can't come to the group until it's been six months following the death. Well, once they access services, they can only stay for 13 months. So even though the rhetoric was quote unquote correct, Every bit of implementation was saturated with pathology, with a Western-based medical model, with the idea of care plans, of goals, of treatment outlines. Um, and so the second kind of pillar to being here human, one is absolutely this anti-racist orientation. And the second is really, truly um, a non-pathology-based orientation. So really, and not just for lip service, and as you heard in our training, a deep, deep orientation as grief, as an experience that we as humans are capable of experiencing, similar to pregnancy, childbirth, digestion, pooping, all of these things that we do that we don't participate in, that don't require our consent, that are involuntary, um, and that aren't particularly pleasant and perhaps even painful and perhaps difficult, um, but that it just is a very, very, very human experience and one that we can perhaps start to leave all of the narrative <laughs> that we've attached onto it 
at the door or at least bring them into the space and start really, really unpacking them and questioning them and saying, who said this? Yeah. Where did this come from? <laughs> Might it not be true? Might it not be in our best interest? Um, so one of the great gifts of being here human are these two kind of foundational orientations and then the complete gift and freedom of being able to do this together without a board of directors, <laughs> without being edited, without worrying about offending our donor base. Um, that if anybody comes to us ever, ever from a marginalized community and says, I want to be a part of here, something here, the answer will 100% of the time be yes. How can we make this possible for you? Yeah. Um, and so being able to have something that's not only created, by marginalized folks, but that centers marginalized identities and their experiences of end of life and grief and loss um, has been so fantastic and so radically different than anything we've ever been a part of before. And, you know, even there's some really <laughs> well-meaning white social workers who are on the call sometimes, you see their neck getting, <laughs> you know, twerked up and their nose getting out of joint because they don't like it so much. And then being able to really with like a full open heart say, then we're not for you. And that's actually okay. Yeah. So by all means, go find something that does speak to you um, to be able to have the authority to do that while simultaneously hearing from so many people in the black community in the trans community in the queer community and just saying, wow, like this actually feels like it's for us. Like it was made for us. Not that we're welcome, but that it's ours. Yeah. Um, and I think like when we get both Michelle and I, I don't speak for you, but when, when we get that feedback or when we look at one of our calls and like white faces of a minority, it just feels like we have really, really done something important. And you're working towards your mission and, and yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. So much really important, um, content to sort of unpack there. And, and the theme that is resonating for me right now, and I know the three of us have talked about before, and you guys address in, in your workshops, um, which I had the complete honor of attending one of their workshops, is this sort of um, laying bare the, the pathology that we have around grief, even not just in the medical community, by the way, even those of us Michelle and I were trained as social workers in lots of different oh. settings, right? Well, they didn't really bother to train us in grief and loss in social work school. I agree. I had to seek that out, you know, outside of school. But even within that, we still have sort of DSM and diagnosis and timelines. And I agree that sort of we're moving towards giving lip service or a narrative to grief as normal, but our systems, and that's always what happens. It's like you can say things, but if your systems, your application, your time of delivery, the people you let in, the people you don't let in, if, if all those systems are still on this pathological model, then it doesn't really matter what you say. And actually, it's more harmful because it causes a dissonance for those of us who are like, you're saying it's normal, but you're showing me it's yeah. not. So then it makes me feel even more like, am I wrong? What's wrong with me? You know, sort of like that dissonance, I think is really, really I think there's a huge. term for that dissonance and it's called gaslighting. And we put it under the category of abusive behavior. <laughs> Thank you. Totally. I appreciate that. Totally, totally calling that out. Right. Yeah. And we, we don't want to, and it was our experience in hospice, you know, everyone, I do think in some capacity, they're do, they believe they're doing good work. And then why rock the boat if it's a good thing? But I think it does need to be called out, which is like, if you are saying that something is normal and then putting any clinical parameters around it, you are gaslighting the very people that are seeking your services. And that is abusive, however unintentional. Well, I mean, we know from, we know from all the work we've done and from all the conversations that are happening globally, particularly in the United States, but I know in Canada too, about intention versus impact when we think about racism, of course, applies to this topic of grief. And so um, holding a light up to the practices and how they do and don't align with the narratives is hugely important as long as we're focusing on the impact and not allowing ourselves to pat ourselves on the back or check a box because we said the thing that sounds right, but if we're not doing the thing that sounds right. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guests, Michelle Williams and Rochelle Bensusson. 
When we come back, we explore the deep human knowing and sense of belonging that can happen between grievers and how that can be often interrupted by the professionalization of care. Like Michelle and Rochelle, I've taken my professional experiences and training. For me, that was as a social worker focusing on narrative therapy and my personal experiences with loss to create a new way of accompanying the grieving. Though I'm informed by much of my training, I also chose not to retain my licensure so that I can show up more fully human, authentically as a fellow griever, without any biases or beliefs that your grief is a sign of pathology. I believe deeply that your grief is a normal response to loss. I've intentionally created safe, supportive, and educational services to meet you exactly where you're at in your grief, including individual sessions, group-guided meditations, workshops, and seminars. You can learn more about these offerings and about why I do this work by visiting reimagininggrief.com. Michelle, tell me a little bit as you guys have created this practice, you guys both, I mean, you can both talk to this, but you have, you know, degrees and you have these sort of professional titles and licensures. And when you switch to being here human, you very consciously, I know from our conversation previously, sort of let go of those. And I've done the same thing with Reimagining Grief. I don't hold a licensure here. I love a lot of what I've learned through my training as a social worker in my practice. And so it's not an all or nothing, but the sort of decoupling of the sort of clinical parameters that often these uh, licensures require has been liberating. And I know it has been for the two of you. Is there something particular, maybe Michelle, you can go first, that 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 decision has allowed you to? What was the kickback, if any, from folks in your circle about that decision? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think for me, the the main thing is, well, first of all, I, I it, it's incongruent with our approach to grief and loss, which is from a non-pathology model. So to sort of, uh, to, to keep a license, to say that I need a license in order to provide that kind of education and support, um, isn't, is not, it doesn't connect with, with the, um, with our motivation behind what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, I think also for me, the, the freedom comes into the idea that like I am allowed to be my human self in those interactions with our audiences, with our clients, whoever they may be, the folks we're supporting. So for example, um, we, we have grief writing workshops, um, that we run so many times per year. And I just finished, um, one for BIPOC. And one of the beautiful things about, our grief writing workshops is that as a facilitator, and even though I'm a, a social worker, um, because I don't have this license, because I don't subscribe to that model, I am able to be in that space with all of those folks yeah. as someone who is bereaved, as someone who has experienced significant loss. And I can show up in my most human aspect and I can share my experiences and I do not need to, or I am not required, or I don't abide by the idea that I must maintain some kind of objective professional distance. Yeah. And so, um, and I think in that way, we are able as an organization to connect with people, um, in a way that they've never been connected before, um, to make these, to have these interactions where there's a real sense of, um, allyship between mm-hmm. who we are as professionals and who they are as bereaved individuals who are still struggling with that significant loss they've experienced, whatever that may be. And so the feedback that we get oftentimes from anyone who's either been in a workshop or like an educational grief literacy training or uh, a grief writing workshop is this idea that the, for the first time they feel that they've been seen. And for the first time, they feel that they've been heard and that they've been met um, one bereaved person to another um, without feeling that they've been gaslit, without being um, made to feel in any way that the experience they're having is not a true experience, without them ever feeling the need to change the expression that they're having, 
There's no need to censor it um, in any way. We aren't asking for that. We actually want folks to show up as they are in their grief with their loss experience. And we will do the same. And we can do that because of the fact that we've taken this position of not being um, licensed professionals who, who are constrained by some form of therapeutic model or, or pathology-based modality. Absolutely. I'm just nodding my head. I know this is an audio podcast, but if y'all can see me out there, you just be like, I'm like having whiplash here from the nodding of my head. And I think, you know, what you're talking about is this practice of being able to truly bear witness to somebody and hold space. And we all know whether it's from a friend or if we've been lucky enough to have that experience in the professional world, the transformational difference it feels to to be seen and to be held, which is, which is helpful, but that's not the same as getting help. You know, getting help is, um, has a sort of pity. It has a sort of, you know, condescension to it. It has a sort of expert, superior, inferior kind of context to it. Rochelle, Rochelle's nodding her head and waving her hands. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're good. Would you go to, would you pay someone to be your guitar teacher without knowing if they've ever picked up the instrument. Right. Would you ever go and pay somebody who only speaks French to be your teacher of Mandarin? Right. And that's what not what bereaved people do when they go to seek out social workers or therapists. Because you, A, by virtue of the model, they cannot disclose to you. So they may have had the same experience, but you won't ever know. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know. And number two, I'm going to speak for Canada. I know it's also similar in the U.S., <laughs> but in Canada, you think of every helping professional that someone might go to, a physician, a nurse practitioner, a psychologist, a counselor, a mental health provider, a social worker, not a single graduate level program in Canada offers a mandatory three credit class on grief and loss. So you are literally paying exorbitant amounts of money to someone who you've been told or made to believe has skills and expertise in the very thing you're experiencing. And in fact, that's an untrue assumption. Right. And so I joke about it in the training, but it's very real to me, which is I don't want to go get a root canal done by someone who graduated from veterinary school. Fair. Fair. Yeah. And that's what we're doing. We're like, you went into school, you have these, first of all, let's be honest, credentials just are a colonized concept. So they're a colonized concept that was designed to keep racialized and poor people out of upper academia. Yeah. So right away, it means if you have those credentials, you have a certain amount of privilege, which in and of itself can be a barrier, And you don't necessarily have any skills or expertise because of those credentials. And now I'm going to take my bereaved heart, my shattered heart, my shattered world, and come into a room where you can't even look at me and say, I really do understand. Right. You can't disclose or share or hold space. Right. Yeah. And if they're, again, if it's normal, if it's normal, then why can't you say to somebody, me too? Yeah. Yeah. My partner died and it shattered my world and I have never been the same since. Yeah. And, and I'm still really glad to be here. And I don't know how you're going to get through. I don't know how I got through, but I'm telling you, you're welcome here. Yeah. yeah. It's a wildly different orientation to people than to, I mean, to me, I get really passionate about it, but it's like, I think it is abusive that it's like, you're going to say that you work in grief and loss. You may have never had a personal loss experience, but having the three letters MSW with no actual training has earned you the profound honor and privilege of sitting with someone whose world has been shattered. Yeah. And I have trained hundreds of community members and volunteers in my career, hundreds of bereaved people who come, the only the only prerequisite is that they identify as bereaved. Yeah. And we do train them. We do the literacy work. And I will fall on my sword for this. They are 1,000% more qualified to sit with someone and to hold someone's heart than any of the professionals I just listed coming out of Canadian graduate schools. Yeah. They just are. Um, I've seen it. 
And so, again, to have given up those credentials, one, I think, is the anti-colonial statement to say, no, thank you. We don't want to participate in that system that is so exclusionary. Um, And two, it feeds into this idea that like, which has been by design, which is that the average person doesn't actually come equipped with the skills and the capacity to be with someone who's grieving. And that's just something we've been socialized to believe that is an absolute untruth. And all we need to do is shift our head anywhere on the globe to places where there aren't paid to be their professionals to see that they care for their dying and their bereaved beautifully without having gotten a PhD. And so I want to be part and being here human wants to be a part of creating human beings and collections and communities of people who are taking it back, who are saying, you took this from us and we want it back. We want it back. We want to care for our people. We want to care for our loved ones and we want them to care for us. Um, It was a lie that you told us that said we couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. So, so powerfully true. Really beautifully said. As we close out our conversation today, I asked Michelle and Rochelle to reflect on the embodied nature of grief, about how so often we get stuck on discussing the emotions of grief and completely ignore that our grief is a full body experience. I invited Michelle to share how she has come to understand the physiological nature of grief And she opened up about becoming aware of the signs her body gives her when grief comes knocking at the door. A note about the timing. We had this conversation in September, the months just before both of these guests feel their grief most acutely each year. Yeah, um, I, I will. I will keep it short. I'll, I'll focus more on my yeah. myself, like how I've applied it, and I'll let Rochelle talk more a little bit more about how we do this within our, within being here human. But for me, it's sort of like over the last several years, I have come to. Um, so my mom died ten years ago. It'll be ten years next month, and for many years after my mother died, I. I was not in that space shortly after she died. I I came into the space later, but I didn't understand the physical impact of her loss on me physiologically. Um, And in the last several years with everything that I've learned and with the work that I've done with Rochelle, um, I now understand that next month won't be good for me. I will probably get sick. I will likely have trouble sleeping. Um, I will probably feel aches in my body. And when it starts to happen, I will not make the connection right away. My brain will not make the immediate connection that what's happening is here. And then I'll have a conversation with Rochelle and then she will remind me that it is the month and that I need to take it easy. And stop being so hard on myself. And honor. And let that physical reaction, that physical grief, do what it needs to do and be gentle and get rest and eat well and don't stress and all of those things. And so that for me is sort of the way that I've begun to apply the work that we do in the way that we speak about grief to my own life is that next month will be a month that I will be very gentle with myself in recognition of the fact that that was a month where I lost my mother. That was a significant loss for me. And it is actually having an impact on my body. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Um, and that practice of sort of a naming it and identifying it and then B offering the, the very kind of compassion that you would offer to the folks that you serve or your friend that you would to yourself, which of course I think we're collectively bad at. And as people in the quote unquote helping profession or whatever are especially not good at that, that, um, that reminds me to, or that makes me think, Rochelle, you're definitely welcome to talk about how this shows up in your work being here human, but it also has me thinking a little bit about how, what does it mean for your own grief to do this work? Like, how are you, I mean, I do this in seven days a week and it's transformed my own relationship with my own grief. The more I do this work for others, have you, 
and you've been doing this for a long time, but just in maybe thinking about the practice you've been in with being here human over these last few years, have you noticed a shift in how you're showing up for yourself in your grief or, or what, how your grief is looking in your life? Um, what I would say is like, it's been a long time. It'll be 15 years in November that Diane died. So it's been a long time that she's not here. And it's been a long time of doing this work. And, um, a part of being here human that Michelle and I don't talk about publicly because it's unnecessary, but it was an agreement that she and I made when we started it, which was one of the ways we were going to do this differently was for being here humans, employees, including us. Mm -hmm. So meaning, um, I never, ever again, am going to have to go to work on November 29th ever. And I don't need to take a vacation day and I don't need to ask anybody um, that multiple times. Michelle I. King, is was one of our facilitators, has come to us and said, this is where I'm at and this is what I need. And we we do it. Right. We had as an example um, this summer, we had an LGBTQ writing workshop, grief writing workshop for those who identify as LGBTQ. And King came to us and it was right around the time of George Floyd's death. And King said, I can't be in space. Even if they're queer, I can't be in space with white people. I won't, I can't facilitate. And we immediately were like, I hear you yeah. done. And we postponed the group and made an queer, an LGBTQ BIPOC group instead. Right. There's times where it's happened on both ends. So I'm using Michelle's example, but it's happened with me too, where it's like, I, I can't do this or I'm having a rough week. And we're like, done that we're canceling it. Yeah. We're canceling and we're rescheduling. And if people don't understand, that's that's not how we do things here. It doesn't matter. Yeah. We trust that it will be okay. Um, same with if people join a workshop and they miss it and we find out later that they got really anxious and they didn't feel ready, they can come back and do it again at another time without having to pay again. Yeah. Like we, There's a lot of ways in which we relate to ourselves and being here human and then, of course, to the, our clients. Um in a way that does really understand that grief is unpredictable and that there's no timeline and that I don't know, like October is Michelle's kind of month. November is my, where there's a lot of anniversaries. Um, and with the knowledge that even 10 and 15 years in, we don't know, we don't know how it's going to show up. We don't know if it's going to show up in our bodies with headaches and or if it's going to be for me like a lot of lack of focus and an inability to actually cognitively get anything done and I might need to say to Michelle I'm really sorry I dropped the bomb on some deadlines I can't get to it I just can't focus um you know to kind of go back to your original question uh, being here human what does it mean to be human and so it, yes we have emotions yes we have bodies Yes, we have our minds, we have our social lives, our sexual identities, our spiritual lives. And so in every dimension of what it means to be human, grief will show up. And so that's how we check it out. And I don't know. I don't know if it's going to impact me this year a lot socially and I'm just going to disappear for the month. Right. And maybe I will. Um, Or if that won't be it at all. And I actually feel really expressive and emotional and want to talk about it a lot. That would be rare for me, but maybe. <laughs> um, so I think like in the sense of how it's impacted our work is that um, in every way, we just get to really, really show up. And the commitment that Michelle and I both made to each other, first and foremost, was that um, we would have an environment where we took care of ourselves and of each other. And that that 100% of the time came before money. Yeah. 100% of the time. And so something can always be canceled or if it's a day she can't show up, I say, I've got the training tonight. I can do it yeah. and vice versa. Um, because we wanted to have not just say that grief is normal and unpredictable and untimely, but it really fucking is. Model it. Yeah. I mean, you guys are talking about showing up authentically yourselves, authentically yeah. human and modeling for each other. And then those that you collaborate with in the work that you do that, there we have to think about grief in this sort of 360 whole person um and we can't do that if we don't name it over and over again if we don't acknowledge for ourselves and for others and show up for each other by reminding each other like hey this might be grief manifesting in your social world or in your body now or whatever and to to name that for each other so it's one of the many many things i appreciate about the two of you about the work that you guys do at Being Here Human, that you're um, someone in the space who is showing up every day and reminding all of us to sort of honor our humanity in its fullest sense and that 
that is um, very integral to, to our grief and to the work of grief. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, the two of you, for joining me on the show today. I so appreciate you um, coming to join us today. This was great. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much. I don't know about you, but I learned so much through my conversation today with these guests. I am grateful to count myself among a community of people who are transforming their professional and personal experiences with death, dying, and grief into something that helps us all feel seen, held, and supported. I'm grateful to these incredible fellow humans for sharing their wisdom, their insights, and their hearts with us today. You can find out more about Michelle and Rochelle and their work at Being Here Human in the show notes for today's episode. I want to thank Gile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music once again for today's show. Oh, and one more thing. It's a merch alert. If you love this show and you need some good work-from-home comfy tees, I've got you covered. The new Grief is a Sneaky Bitch tees are up for sale now at reimagininggrief.com. Thank you for listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. Thank you.